0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about the city of Hamilton and its downtown, specifically the fact that for many, many years now, a big part of Hamilton's strategic plan has been revitalizing the downtown and bringing density and more dense residential opportunities to the city. But with coronavirus, with what's been happening now, is there a chance that gets revisited? And that goes to transit too. Do we change our thoughts on putting many, many, many people in small spaces? Does that happen? Well, we'll talk with Councillor Brad Clark about whether he expects any changes there. We're also going to be chatting about something that's been thrown out there from the federal government, which is the idea of making it illegal to post things online that would be considered damaging or bad or erroneous information about coronavirus. Now, that may sound like a maybe a good idea on its face but do we really want to start going down the path where the government acts as a censor for information that someone may honestly believe is true do we really want to go there we'll talk about that and also on the show we're going to be chatting with the owner of one of the most historic pucks in hockey history that has spent the last 70 years right here in hamilton stay with us today on the scott radley show on 900 chml for many years now, as everybody knows, uh, Hamilton's plan, Hamilton's strategic plan, it's downtown plan has involved a redevelopment of the downtown. And as part of that, the the creation of higher density residential opportunities. We wanna bring people, at least this has been the plan, bring more people into the core. And there are reasons for that, of course. And of course, this would include transit things as well. But all of this was before coronavirus. And now we're being told that rather than being in tight quarters, we should be further apart. We should be social distancing. You know the words now, social distancing is the word of 2020, make no mistake. But mass transit in the city is no longer mass transit, really. It's like 10 people, I think, is the number that you're allowed to have on a bus right now. And what we're going through right now may be demonstrating to us by necessity a new way to do business that requires less commuting. And it got me wondering whether all of this is going to change how our city looks at downtown issues as we come out of this on the other end. Brad Clark is the counselor for Ward 9. He joins me now. Brad, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Scott. How are you? Excellent. You're enjoying your social distancing? I'm
1: not sure the word enjoying would be the top of mind to describe physical distancing. Um, We're hanging in there. Everyone is healthy here. That's good. They are with your family as well.
0: They are. That is good. Uh, for years now, the push has been on within the city to um, curb suburban sprawl and bring more people into the core. And you've had some success with that, certainly certainly, with younger people, younger workers, new people into Hamilton. that They have been buying into this. Uh, and then this coronavirus thing happens. And I'm wondering, do you get the impression that when we go through something like this, that it's going to make the suburbs more appealing again or more desirable again? Or does this do nothing to change anything?
1: I'm speculating, but I and you know I hate doing that, uh, but I don't think it's going to change a whole lot. I think that we will find that there will be some individuals who will point to COVID-19 as the reason why we should continue suburban sprawl. I think that in Hamilton we will continue to find a fair portion of um, suburban development as well as a fair portion of uh, intensified development along transit corridors. When I look at communities or municipalities in South Korea, they, they, there isn't a more dense population And yet they were able through physical distancing to significantly minimize the impact of COVID. So I don't think there's an argument there that we have to go to uh, spread out housing.
0: No, and and, you know, the argument, it's a good, the South Korea one is a good one. And at the same time, so many of the other places that have been hit the hardest are dense areas. So you've got the same situation, but two different results. And people are going to interpret that, I guess, however they would.
1: Yeah, I, I, I suspect they will um when i look at what's happening in new york city um you have to compare what the governor has done in
0: new york and compare with what south korea did and and there is a difference so these things i mean look you can't ignore things like this because we don't know if there will be another pandemic i mean when was the last one it's been a while uh you can't make all your plans based on the worst case scenario at the same time i'm not sure that you can completely ignore it for the future either so do you see that this becomes an issue even to be discussed around the council table or when everything gets back to some form of normal do we just carry on and say well that was unfortunate uh, let's hope that doesn't happen again but that doesn't really affect us at all
1: i would be naive if i thought that it wouldn't come up around the planning committee in discussions with regards to the grids uh, process uh, for the municipality of Hamilton. But I think it's important that people understand that there is more emergency preparedness planning and there is always ongoing planning within public health to deal with crises like this, as there is at the province and, and the federal level. Um, and it takes into account whatever um, type of municipality we grow into. I mean, Toronto the interest- is a dense municipality, but by the same
0: token, they have handled it well. And and as I was going to say, what I mentioned before, you will interpret this how you wish to interpret this. You could just go on social media and those who are... Um, urbanists are looking at this as a thing to push for urbanism those who are suburbanists are pushing i mean it's there's it's going to come up i would assume (laughs) but it's going to be based on whatever your preconceived notion was going into it
1: you're you're describing the dynamics of human nature of course (laughs) there folks who are in hamilton city council (laughs) will say see this is an example as to why we need more suburban development and those who are Uh, pro-intensification will point to, you know, uh, municipalities and cities around the world that that did an excellent job with COVID. I don't think there's a fair argument on either side. I think COVID-19 is what it is, and if a municipality, a province, a country was organized and got their act together like we did in Canada, in Ontario, and in Hamilton, then we were able to minimize the impacts of COVID-19 dramatically. And so kudos to our political leaders who, who did the right thing. And yet in the United States, we're seeing areas where they didn't do the right thing. And as a result, they have had significant issues. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Chatting with Brad Clark, not apparently I said Brad Ward. That was a He was a politician in Brantford in 1995 are, when I was working there. there. Yeah, I have no idea where that name came from out of my subconscious. But anyway, Brad Clark is who we're talking to. Municipal politician, city councillor here in Hamilton.
2: I
1: won't say that and, you're
0: getting old. <laughs> oh, you, you can feel free. You know, it's when, when it's my grandmother used to have this habit where names would pop out of her head from, you know, the war years. And I was like, where'd that come from? Well, that's me now. Um, genetic then. Okay. <laughs> it must be. It must be. And with age, yes. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before that, you you know, you don't want to speculate too much. You don't like to guess too much. That's the area for the amazing Kreskin and others. But do you think what we're going through right now is going to change how people work?
1: I, I, th- uh, I believe there will be um, some consideration in the business community about the way they operate. And even in in the government sector, the way they operate, I think there'll be a more A larger willingness to allow people to work from home more frequently, knowing that you can put systems in place that protect um, the security of data and things along that line and and still get things done. So I suspect it will happen. Will it be a dramatic shift? I don't think so.
0: And and the reason I ask that is because that would seem to be a, a new but an important a uh, piece of a discussion around transit, which is always a discussion around the council table, but if suddenly we anticipate lots of other people, lots of people now are going to work from home rather than having to get on a bus or a car or whatever, that would seem to change, to reframe the discussion perhaps.
1: Yeah, I I, I can't see that dramatically happening. There are, like I say, there are some um, work situations that would be more... It would work in that, those conditions than in others. Um, we have a large service industry. We have a large uh, construction industry. We All of those different industries, they're not the types of jobs that people can do from home. But there are some office jobs, IT jobs, um, finance jobs, things along those lines that I think people then are
0: starting to realize that they can do things a little bit differently. You've been a minister, a cabinet minister at Queen's Park, minister of transport, as it turns out. Um, You've been in those offices. Now, obviously not under the circumstances they're dealing with right now, but you know how that place works. Uh, Do you anticipate or do you believe that the billion dollars, since we're talking about transit a bit, do you believe that billion dollars that has been talked about for Hamilton for so many years now, do you think it's still going to come in the current economic situation? I think they would be hard
1: pressed not to deliver uh, on that mi- billion dollars uh, if it was for a form of higher order transit. I think the political fallout would be too severe. I think the ramifications and the level of trust between municipalities in the province would be too severe if they reneged on Hamilton. And then every other mayor across the province would be wondering, well, if they did this to Hamilton, would they do it to us? So I, I, I don't see that happening.
0: It, would would it be something like that, though? And again, this is just what I wonder with the billions of dollars the province is shelling out and with with reason right now. I mean, it, you know, we, we understand the circumstance, but, uh, you know, m- my first thought was, well, is this the moment when they say when this is done? Look, everybody, all those things that we had promised, I'm sorry, we got to reevaluate these because we had an unexpected expense in the billions and tens and maybe hundreds of billions of dollars. I suspect it
1: would be the opposite. If they've had if they've she- shelled out that much money, then what's another billion? And then what's another billion? All right. I suspect the the era of of governments and politicians arguing over how quickly they're going to lower the deficit are likely long gone. I suspect that large deficits will will be there for some time. And it will be a gradual erosion over time as opposed to, we got to get rid of this in four years. Because quite candidly, I don't think it's possible to get rid of a deficit that they're now
0: incurring in four years. I would agree with that. Absolutely, I would agree with that. And that brings me, and we only have a minute or so left, but to the city. I mean, the city we've heard is down $23 million as a result of this already. How is the city... What's the city's capabilities, if the LRT was to get back on board, what would be the city's capabilities to contribute to this in any way? Because we're now even more in the hole. Can we do that? Can we find some more money? Um,
1: I, I I fully expect that we will find emergency funding coming from the upper levels, senior levels of government to assist all municipalities, not just Hamilton, with COVID-19. And the City of Hamilton um, is looking at their finances and making adjustments to deal for COVID-19. So I don't think that there is a quid pro quo uh, with regards to uh, the billion dollars, and I don't think that the impact to the municipality on future transit costs are going to be an issue for the municipality. I think we're still going to have our budget. We're going to follow through with our budget, and COVIDs will be one item that we had to deal
0: with and once we have all of the funding in place, it'll be it'll be moved to the side. Ward 9 Counselor Brad Clark. Not Brad Ward, Brad Clark. Different guy. <laughs> We're much happier to have Brad Clark with us today. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate My it. My pleasure, Scott. You take care of yourself. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show Podcast on 900
2: CHML.
0: Two days ago, the president of the Privy Council, Dominic LeBlanc, said he has been talking with federal cabinet ministers about making it an offense, an offense. So punishable offense as in fines or a criminal code charge or something, an offense to spread dangerous misinformation online about coronavirus. In other words, the proposal or the blue skying or trial test balloon or whatever you wanna call it that has been thrown out there is, if you go online and you post something or go on social media and post something, that offers misinformation about treatments or something else, I guess, if they, if you don't believe in vaccinations, if you're an anti-vaxxer, for example, the government under this idea would be able to charge you. Now, you know there are some people who on their very first blush would say, good, we don't wanna have bad information out there, and that's correct, we don't wanna have bad information out there, but is it better in this country for us to say the opposite of bad information is saying you can't speak what you want to speak. We can't have freedom of speech. And even if we go down that road, how is this possibly enforceable? Well, Jamie Stevenson is the past president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. She joins us now. Jamie, how are you today?
3: Thank you, Scott, how are you?
0: I'm excellent, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you doing this because it's a, to me it's a really troubling but also a really interesting topic. And, and here's why it seems like, a to me, it seems like a really, really bad idea because if the bar is simply spreading misinformation, you would think the government has already broken its proposed law. It said that the virus wasn't coming here. That's in misinformation. It said the closing the borders was a bad idea. Uh, that was misinformation. It said stopping flights from China was a bad idea. Well, that was uh, wearing masks, self-quarantining. I don't believe they've done any of those things with any malice, but if the law simply says spreading misinformation, they've already broken the law, have they not?
3: They have, and according to their definition, as we know it as right now, any issue that is in its infancy, as this issue is, is going to be fraught with misinformation because every time we turn on the news, the information changes, because it changes when progress is made, it changes when the research changes, it changes when the information that those who are giving us the information changes, just like you said, when we talk about whether border closures were necessary, whether we should wear masks, or we shouldn't wear masks, all of those things are changing. And as you said, it's not as though the government was necessarily giving us misinformation on purpose, but how do we define what misinformation is when someone believes that information to be true?
0: So, if someone had in the if this law had been in place already, or if a law along these lines had been in place already, and someone had gone online and said, Look, you can pr- potentially prevent getting coronavirus by wearing a mask. And the government had taken the position that no a mask does nothing for you theoretically i guess based on this idea you could have faced some kind of charge and then what happens if you were convicted or if you've paid your fine or did whatever else and then later on two weeks later the government comes out and says you know a mask might actually be helpful what do we do how do we untangle that
3: well and that's the problem and you really can't go back even if the government says okay i'm sorry we were wrong We're going to withdraw that from your record or whatever that is. It's too late. You've already been through that process, whether you've, as you said, paid a fine, hired a lawyer, or just been through the embarrassment if it's been something that's been publicized. And the difficulty is that, again, with this issue in its infancy, there are studies on both sides of the equation. There are studies that say, well, this will help. And there are studies that say, well, that will help. And that this, the other thing that you said won't help. So, When you look at it, again, how do we define misinformation when, if I can bring to you a study that supports my position, you may not accept that study. You may say, well, I have a different study. But again, who gets to decide whose study is right? Who gets to decide that, well, because the government said so, it's right? That's completely contrary to our democracy.
0: For, for someone to be charged with something criminally, and again, it's unclear whether they're throwing out the idea of a criminal charge or a fine or something, but for, for someone to be charged and then convicted, there does have to be some level of intent or an understanding that what you're doing is very likely to cause harm, right? It can't be, you can't hold the true belief that what you're doing is right. Well, I, I suppose you could if it was obvious, but what would be the rule? What would be the rule that would say you could get charged as far as intent goes?
3: Well, that's the difficulty because the fundamental basics of criminal law, and this is literally law 101, is that in order to commit a criminal act, there has to be an actus reus, the doing of something criminal, and a mens reus, the intent of doing something criminal. So, if I publish something in the in the news or online or on my Instagram account that I truly believe. To be accurate information, if I'm basing that on a study or I'm basing that on a source that I believe in, then who's to then I have no mens rea, I have no intent of publishing misinformation. So how how then can I be convicted of that? And that goes
0: holistic medicine, or I'm. So, if, so if I'm someone who believes in holistic medicine, or I'm a chiropractor, or certain chiropractors, or whatever else, who a natural healer, someone who truly believes in what I'm doing, even if other people may think it's not right, it would be very difficult to say you're spreading, maliciously spreading information that you know to be bad.
3: Exactly, and that's the problem, because we are entitled to our beliefs, and our beliefs are founded on either believing what we've learned from others or what we've learned from our own studies. And that goes back to what I said at the outset is often cases in science, you can find study A, B, and C that says X. But then you can also find study C, B, and E that says Y. Both have studies that support their relative positions You mentioned vaccines and that's a pretty hot button topic and I'm not going to opine on what I think of that, but you have two very strong opinions on both sides and they're based on scientific research, those opinions. The opinions where people say vaccines are good are based on scientific research and the opinions where people say vaccines are bad are based on scientific research. So who determines who's providing the misinformation?
1: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show Podcast on 900 CHML.
0: A number of people in the federal government, including the president of the Privy Council, have thrown out the idea of making it illegal to put things online that would be considered bad information about COVID. Now, it's unclear at this point how, in fact, something like this would be done, whether you have to apply the term maliciously doing it, which becomes very difficult, or just putting up bad information. Nonetheless, it's an interesting and troubling position to take because of the so many different problems that would lie when you start trying to take away free speech and the and the opportunity for people to express their opinions. Jamie Stevenson, past president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association, joins us. And Jamie, if somebody was ever to do this, and if somebody from the government were to lay a charge and they hired a lawyer, the person who was now charged, the first thing that lawyer would do is say this person truly believed what they had posted, that there was no malicious intent here, which would mean the Crown would have to then prove some sort of malice or prove that they didn't, in fact, believe what they said they believed. How do you prove that someone doesn't believe something?
3: And that's the challenge. They would have to be- They would have to somehow prove that either they didn't believe it or that they had reason
0: to, to know
3: that it was false. So again, it comes back to the issue of if I believe vaccines are bad because of the studies that I've reviewed, and I post that on the internet, and somebody says, no, you're wrong, and you're posting misinformation about vaccination, specifically about the COVID vaccination that may or may not ultimately be developed and they say, look, there's these other studies, then I would then rely, I would say, number one, I believe, or my client believes that information to be true. But number two, there are studies to support that belief. So they would literally, as a crown, you would have to prove that a 100%, and to my knowledge, there aren't studies that say a 100%. There are studies that say 80%, 90%. But there are not studies that say a hundred percent what you're saying is wrong, and that's the difficulty, and that's the challenge that the crowns would face in trying to prove this offense. It would be, and and who defines that?
0: Is, and is the th- question. this, yeah, and this is where it starts to get very troubling for me. Is not that I like? I'm not urging people to put faulty information up online. I don't want faulty information up online. But if you were to pass a law like this, to me, it seems like you've suddenly thrown open the doors to other things, and if if it's now illegal to be spreading information that the government deems to be false, government of whatever date, conservative, liberal, NDP, whoever, if you now have a law that says if the government determines that what you've put up there is false, could that not be applied then to intimidate people from having alternative points of view on all kinds of other things that the government may determine they don't agree with you on?
3: Absolutely, it's the first step and that's exactly the issue. There was this, an article that I read in relation to this very issue pri- prior to speaking with you this evening that talked about that this is, this is really aimed at people who are these conspiracy theories, theorists. Well, a lot of what people who were deemed conspiracy theorists in history turned out to be exactly right. So, again, we have our own government providing information that turns out to be wrong. That's a fact. So how do we then say that people who are providing information that the government deems at this time to be misinformation, they should be charged, they should be convicted, they should be fined or receive whatever punishment. And again, as you said, at the outset, a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, we find out that, oh, wait, hold on a second. They were right. How do you go back? You can't go back. And unfortunately, again, when we're dealing with this type of issue, this type of quote unquote crisis or pandemic. The facts are constantly changing. The facts that our own government is giving us are constantly changing. So are they going to sit back and say, oh, yeah, we intentionally gave that wrong information, but we're sorry, here's the right information. No, they're going to say, hey, we made a mistake based on the information that we had at the time that we provided to you. So now here you go. Here's the new information that we have. And again, this information is ever evolving."
0: Where, where does, I mean, the other side of this that always amazes me is where does the personal responsibility come from people who are online? I mean, if you read something, it doesn't mean you have to automatically believe it. And I know some people do, but at some point, do you not have to put the responsibility on the viewer of the item to say, wait, that, that sounds a little nuts. I'm not necessarily going to go and shove a garter snake up my nose because someone said that's going to cure coronavirus. I mean, there has to be some responsibility on the other people.
3: Well, that's another issue as well. And that comes down to just like we don't accept false advertising. So you can't go on. I can't go online and say I'm the best lawyer in Canada. Even oh, though sure I you could. That.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> but I, I can't say those types of things as an advertisement unless they're true. So it's the same type of thing. You have a responsibility to, to learn about the information that you're receiving. It's just like when people go on Google and Google laws and come into my office and they say, well, we read this. And I explain to them how some of what they've learned is accurate and some of what they've learned has been misinterpreted and here's why. That's why you have professional people who understand and know the law. That's why you have doctors that know and understand the law. But the challenge that we have is we have a lot of people out there who are not trained professionals and I don't think you have to be a trained medical doctor necessarily in order to provide accurate information just like you don't have to be a trained lawyer but you can always
0: check but you can always check with a doctor Jamie we got to run unfortunately Jamie Stevenson past president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association always love having you on thanks for doing this today
3: thanks very much Scott take care
0: you're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML last week, if you were joining us, I was talking with Phil Pritchard, who is the guy who wears the white gloves and carries the Stanley Cup. He's from Burlington. He's the curator at the Hockey Hall of Fame. And we were talking about Pat Stapleton, who played on the 1972 Canada-Russia series team for Canada, and allegedly, apparently, uh, supposedly, has Paul Henderson's puck, the goal that Paul Henderson scored on Vladislav Trecek with to win that series. And Pat Stapleton had died last week. And we were talking about that puck. Well, in the middle of that discussion that we were having on the air, my phone goes off with a text. And someone says, did you know that the goal, the puck, pardon me, the puck, that Bill Barilko shot to win that 1951 Stanley Cup final, did you know that that puck has been in Hamilton for 70 years? Basically since the night that that goal was scored? I had no idea. So I did a little digging and came across a guy named Dan Donahue, who joins us now. Dan, how are you tonight? Good evening, Scott. Thanks for having me. How are you? No, I'm great. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So I, I get this text about this puck being in Hamilton and I start digging around and, um, well, why don't you, it's true. I mean, apparently it's absolutely true and, and people can go to the spec.com and see you and see the puck and everything else. But uh, this story, when I first heard it, it, sounded too crazy to believe. So why don't you just take it and tell us how you came into possession of this Bill Barilko puck? Sure. Thanks, Scott.
2: Yes, it's, uh, it's been in the family for, for ever since I can remember. Um, my dad had um, passed away in 2013. Before he passed, he left uh, this, uh, this uh, heirloom with us, and it's uh, a puck in the stand that he had built, uh, or actually had built. The uh, reason how the story goes is that I guess when my mom passed away um, in 2003, a lot of dad's friends would come by and kind of hang out with them over the over time, and I would come in and visit him. And all the guys would have at the table in the in the kitchen. They'd be sitting around talking about the puck, and the puck would be in this uh, trophy sitting in the middle of the table. And really, wasn't really didn't pay, you know take any uh, paying attention to it, but I realized that you know this was something that had to be looked into. Everybody wanted to uh, know about the puck. Everybody wanted to. Uh, you know, take the puck home.
0: Actually, even after <laughs> I wanted to sell the puck.
2: So as I drove, how, uh, how did you come into in
0: contact? How did your dad? How did your dad come to own it though? How did it come to be in your house? So we looked into that. So
2: what happened was, uh, Dad uh, had season tickets. So his his grandfather had season tickets. Um, and what happened is that that day um, he was invited by his dad. It was his turn to go to the uh, to go to that game. So he had tickets for the game and uh he had four tickets just up from the blue line and that night he went uh, with his dad um my my grandfather didn't drive so he had uh, he had a driver they drove uh, to the maple leaf uh, gardens and it was his turn to to participate or watch the game that night but what happened was um, once he scored the goal uh, dad had sat there with his with his dad saying hey dad look at the uh look at the puck as it sat in the net there and I go down and retrieve it from the goal So my, my grandfather said yeah, go right ahead so we went down asked the usher if he could climb over the boards and he actually you know walked across the ice and took the puck right out of the net as all the uh, as Montreal and Toronto were cheering in the corner there as they scored the goal so he took the puck back uh, on his way back up to his seats. one of the uh, front row patrons asked him if he would uh, sell the puck for 20 bucks my dad said no way so he we went back up. showed uh, showed his dad, look what I got, and he had a little souvenir there that
0: uh, he cherished uh, ever since. Um, People would think right now, Dan, that people would think that when you describe that behavior, I mean, today you get arrested if you go on the ice, but (laughs) back then it was, uh, you know, I I started thinking about this, and, and back then it was not all that unusual, and as recent as 1974, there's video when the Flyers and Bruins finished their Stanley cup final, the Bruins had won it and they do the handshake line that you see all the time. There was a guy in a t-shirt out of the stands who ran in. It was in the handshake line with those guys. And, and that same year when Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's home run record, there were fans running the bases with Hank Aaron. It was not all that unusual for people to get onto the field. The wall between fans and athletes back then was much, much lower than it is now.
2: Right. He had no problems climbing over the boards and, uh, as you can see, some of the old film footage, you'll see that there's no really no glass around certain sides of the, uh, of the ice there. So there was
0: no issue getting over. So he gets this puck and then he, he brings it home and gets this trophy made. How did it stay in Hamilton for all these years with so few people presumably seemingly knowing about it? I mean, I, obviously there are some people who know. But did he not tell anybody about it? Did he not share it? Or did people who see it just not tell anyone? How did it remain such a secret?
2: Not really. He, he didn't really you know, brag about the puck. He just had it on, on his mantle that I, I can remember, even at the bar at the, our first home. Um, he never really bragged about it. I know that we played with it as kids. My brothers would play <laughs> in the basement. We'd shoot it around. Really had no idea really what the puck represented. But uh, I knew that it was something that dad cherished because he always kept it close to him or in his uh, office or, um, you know, on the on the bar at all times. So, like I said, it wasn't really until, you know, the passing of my mom where they got interested because all his, all my dad's friends were interested uh, in the pocket and wanted to know if I would sell it or if he would sell it. So that's when I did the investigation. Um, I worked with uh, uh, with my nephew on no, no,
0: the I was... pocket sales. Sorry, we just had a tiny bit of a delay here, but I was i was going to say that I did hear from a guy named Jack Wise today, and he told me the story that his dad had apparently been your grandfather's driver to some of the games and says the story that you are telling and that your dad told you is 100% the same story that his dad told him because his dad had driven your grandfather and father that day. Well, wow, I would love to meet meet with him or get his name. I'd love to chat with him on that. But it just backs it up. It backs up the story that this was, you know, that this actually happened. That he got a puck from somewhere. Now the question became: You took the puck after your father passed away to the Hall of Fame to sort of say, "Here, I've I've got the puck." And what was the response you got when you took it to the Hall of Fame and and showed them? So I met with
2: Phil and Craig uh, at the Hockey Hall of Fame, and they said, "Hey, I have the uh, I have the winning puck uh, in the Hockey Hall of Fame, actually, and uh, and here it is." Actually, I brought my puck down to show them, and actually, they showed me what they had in the Hockey Hall of Fame. So, it was two different pucks, um, and uh, we had to figure out how we we're going to prove that we had the right puck. One thing different with the puck in the Hockey Hall of Fame, it has a uh, a white Spalding stamp on it, and that puck is made for the 1920 to 1942 era. Um, and then my puck, the puck that batted, fetched, than that it fetched out of the net, that puck was uh, has a a uh, Art Ross. Uh, brand stamp on it an orange stamp and it was it was made in the 1950 1958 era so that puck that dad had fits in that uh, time frame that uh, that goal was scored um having a a nine or a 10 year old puck um later on i'm not sure how that would happen but um that's what the hockey hall of fame was saying that uh, they have that puck
0: so you get the puck, uh, which is one thing. So now you've got the puck that's of the right era. Now the Hall of Fame, you know, look, they, they've got to, they they don't even know exactly, or they, they have a pretty good idea where they got their version, but they don't know if it is or isn't. They believe it was. Uh, and, but they said, you know, like sometimes pucks can be put back in circulation if there's a shortage or something. So it doesn't necessarily prove that this puck, this doesn't necessarily prove this is it. You start to look for video, you bring in a video expert, and he finds something that backs up your story too.
2: Sure, uh, we brought uh, Paul, Paul Patskew, uh, who's a hockey historian, video historian, and he was able to find some film footage of, um, of a fan on the ice, actually walking towards the, uh, the net as everybody was cheering and, and, and partying in the corner. And you can see this, uh, this gentleman walking, tall, thin, dark-haired gentleman, dark suit, and fit the exact description of my dad at,
0: at that, uh, that age.
2: So, so, okay, so now you've got
0: two pieces. Now you've got two pieces of, of suggesting evidence that right. maybe this happened. But there's a third thing that becomes really complicated with this story, and I've watched the clip now probably 50 times, <laughs> and that is that there is a second puck on the ice. And, and when I first watched it, when and it's old black and white grainy film, And so, you know, it could have been at first I thought, oh, maybe it's a speck of dirt or something else. It's not really a puck, but it's clearly a puck. And so how do you know that the puck that you got and the puck that was the one that went into the net was the one and not the other one? Because, of course, there has to be another puck just to complicate this thing even further. How would you find that out?
2: Well, what we did was I worked with or I went to the um, Toronto Archive, and there's a gentleman there who was able to pull a, a picture of the puck actually sitting in the net as my dad described sitting up uh, on the angle this against the uh, the post there just inside the net and just as my dad described we were able to get to the negative and actually blow the puck up uh, with a large photograph view on it and you can actually see the actual stamp on the puck as uh you know filling up most of the puck and you can see that it did not look like the, the spalding the smaller stamp on it so that kind of gave us a better view of what the puck um, that was actually in the net. So it kind of lines up with the puck that we have. Um, and that's why the puck that was thrown over the glass and across the ice, maybe that was a puck that was picked up and thrown over the glass for Jimmy Maine to take home. And, uh, that explains possibly
0: the, how, how they got that puck and why there's two different pucks. Do you ever wonder, even though you said that you're, you know, you're probably not going to sell it. Have you ever wondered what it's worth?
2: Actually. No, we actually, it's really hard to put a, a price on something. Um, as I say, I've, I've talked to some some experts, uh, and I guess I'd have to really legitimize that the puck is, I'd have to prove that puck without a doubt to anybody else, but I know the puck is the puck. But uh, I've, I have no idea what the puck would be worth. I would you would have to compare that to other, other
0: um, important pucks in the NHL and see what they're worth. It'd be right up there with them your dad i mean he was uh your dad and your grandfather your grandfather was the guy who had the season tickets initially but i mean they were both big fans did your dad or grandfather ever have any other maple leaf memorabilia or is this the one bit that they uh they kept
2: not that uh i can recall scott uh this is as i said this is something that uh you know dad went down on his own and pulled that puck out of the net so this is something he cherished over the years but I, uh, I'm not. I'm not aware of anything else, or you can remember anything else that he had uh, from
0: uh, from from the Maple Leafs at that time. It is a great story, and it's as I say, it's stunning that it's been 69 years today. In fact, but basically seven decades, and I had never heard this story before. I'm guessing most people had never heard this story before. Your dad kept a, if not a secret, he certainly wasn't bragging about it, um, and. Uh, they say everybody that I've heard from today after the story was in the paper has said really never heard that story before I mean you, your family did an excellent job at keeping this thing under wraps and the, so finally though now almost seven decades later It's finally coming out. You're gonna put it on tour.
2: Yes, that's right. I'm working with um, uh, With a gentleman by the name of Mark Farah. He's got a unbelievable collection of the Maple Leaf uh, mem- memorabilia and uh, we want to p- uh, Put uh, the puck on display uh, as part of the Bill Barocco exhibit that uh, he is putting together, um, and we want to be able to feature the puck, uh, the trophy, the fuselage that he obtained, and many other artifacts that uh, go with that to Bill Barocco, and he can get to, you can get more details from that from Facebook, um, and that will give you some more details of what we plan on doing in
0: the in the coming months and putting this on display. <laughs> It is uh, it is a great story and I absolutely appreciate you talking about it Dan it's uh, it, and it's a cool bit of Hamilton even though it's I mean it's sort of Hamilton it's Hamilton now let's put it that way the story is Hamilton now even if it wasn't before Dan Donahue really appreciate it have a great night Thanks Scott have a good night That is uh, look there's a lot of great stories that uh, that are told and that have connections to this city that that is absolutely one of them and you know it's uh, there are others as i say you know you could have an entire evening and maybe someday we will. You can have an entire evening with the stories that have come from the Kineski's old shop when Terry Sawchuk used to show up to get his pads sewn to um, you know, the story that I, I have told before and have written about before. The puck from the nineteen eighty seven Canada Cup that was passed from Gretzky to Lemieux that won that Canada Cup. I don't know if you saw the story once upon a time, but it um it found a home in a rather unusual place. Go online, look that one up. I won't spoil the ending for you. That one's that one's a good uh, that one's a good whodunit about where that puck went. You can go online and find that story. But that one of the most famous pucks, probably the most famous puck ever from the most famous goal certainly scored in Hamilton ever. The puck from that you will be shocked at where that thing landed. The Scott Radley Show weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.